0: You know, you got to throw us under the bus Natic once in a while. dream boy.
1: <laughs> yes. yes, queen.
0: Oh, God.
1: <laughs> You're listening to a podcast created by the Jack's Way Collective. We're a group of friends who like to talk about philosophy, fiction, and whatever else is on our minds. Thank you very much for listening. Now, let's get to the show.
0: All right. Uh, so, we are back. So, uh, today, Gordon actually sent us a paper uh, for us to read. It's titled 500 Days of Post Feminism: a multidisciplinary analysis of the manic pixie dream girl stereotype in its context. This is written by Lucia Gloria and Rodriguez Vasquez. And so, basically, it's going to go over a bunch of different films that have the manic pixie dream girl. A stereotype or a trope, whatever you want to call it. But one of the films that we all recently watched that is mentioned throughout the entire paper is Ruby Sparks, a 2012 film. I just watched it last night for the first time. So we will talk about all the films that are listed in this paper, but uh, we're going to try and have Ruby Sparks centered in the discussion since it's fresh, in at least my mind. So I guess we'll go from there. Maybe we will just start with some general thoughts on the paper. How uh, Maybe, Gordon, you want to start, how did you discover it in the first place, and then talk about what we think of that and uh, Ruby Sparks, the film in general, too. Sure.
2: Well... First of all, I grew up really, really liking this film, 500 Days of Summer, and I've seen it many, many times. It is one of my favorites of all times, and I would definitely... It's a film that I would always recommend to my friends who have not seen it. And in university, actually in a class with uh it was uh, this class in Hollywood, and it is where I first heard of this term the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And summer, in 500 Days of Summer, Is uh, thought to be this really uh, uh, like an epitome, this character type, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. So after that, I just became quite fascinated with this idea because I want to know why I like this type of character so much, right? So when I come to uh, the master's program, and the great thing about this master's program is that you can write about, research about whatever you like. And um, I have written essays on... This topic in uh, for at least a couple times on different perspectives, on perspective of uh, madness in cinema, and another one more like a, a new media approach. But uh, so the, during my research, this is when I encountered this paper. Uh, it is actually a conference paper written just a couple of years ago, and this is, I think, the most comprehensive and updated uh, study or, or just just an essay on this topic. Because you know, if you Look up Manic Pixie Dream Girl on Google or even Google Scholars. They link you to really just like magazine articles or newspaper articles. Typically, feminists just trashing on this idea because they, they hate it. <laughs> and, and we can get into that for a second. <laughs> um, but actually, this is not what I'm interested in. That uh, is, oh, oh, this fat woman. But I, I'm actually the other way. I want to reverse engineer this, is to understand why. Men like these type of characters so much. And so I think if I take this approach and this thinking, then maybe we can understand why these things emerge in the first place. So this is why,
0: yeah, yeah. Sweet. Yeah, I know one of the first things that I thought about when I finished the paper was exactly like you said is I loved how comprehensive it was. It was not specifically coming at it with that strong, you know, feminist stance using the Manic Pixie Dream Girl as – You know, pure pejorative. Um, Instead, it was doing a a kind of meta-analysis of many different scholars' approaches on the same topic and um, seeing it from all of these different angles. So, To come at this subject for, aside from the Hollywood class, for the first time, I think that this was a great choice for an intro paper because I found myself being pushed and pulled in many different directions while reading. Sometimes I'd be like, oh, disagree, but then I would encounter like a very good counterpoint and it would pull my intuitions back uh, back the other way. So I think it was a great choice. What do you think, Oliver?
1: Well, this was my first encounter with the manic pixie dream girl, so I'm still... uh in the process of figuring out uh, what i think but about it but you've
2: seen and Dream Dreamgirls films before right
1: yeah i've seen 500 days of summer quite a bit now
0: mm-hmm. i think we're yes. all guilty of uh, <laughs> enjoying loving it. these films as well i fucking love exactly. all of them dude <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> they're
1: so great same <laughs>
0: and so i like your approach gordon mm-hmm. like well, how can i how can i you know read this and be confronted with people's problems with this but at the same time Still love these types of films and love the essence of these types of uh women as represented uh in these pieces of but I gotta say though well.
2: now now I have okay I, I would probably say that I've grown out of them <laughs> like um I don't like them as much anymore <laughs> especially after the research you know like I have like written this 5,000 word paper on it kind of understand how it works and um yeah, because we said it, it was guilty, right? And if it's guilty, it, there's some aspect of unhealthiness in it. And I understand why this guilty pleasure is unhealthy for me. And I come to a realization, oh, okay, maybe maybe I don't need it need it anymore. So I've liked it less. But nonetheless, though, still one of my pleasures.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will say, like, it depends on the film, too. The Ruby Sparks, I would like much less... For example, than Zoe Deschanel or yeah, or Clementine, or Clementine from Eternal Sunshine, and I think that the the paper hits on why as well because uh, I don't want to get into it too early, but you know those other two characters compared to Ruby are actually for the most part fully formed human beings, whereas um, Ruby is is not. Hey, right?
2: here an interesting note. Did you know that? Okay, this might play a part in why you like those two films more than Ruby Sparks. Maybe it was because Ruby Sparks was written by the actress herself, Zoe Kazan. So it's written by a woman. <laughs> mm. And yeah,
0: I saw that actually. It? I saw that.
1: And one of the directors was a it was a directing duo, and one of them was a female, I think.
0: Um, yeah, I think they're husband, husband and wife, wife right? Um, Paul Dano.
2: Was it Paul Dano? Dano.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. he's married to Zoe Kazan. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. Interesting. So they like. They wrote this film together, mm. I think, but uh, mainly Zoica Town.
0: Um, wow, okay. So maybe we should just start talking a little bit about uh, the film Ruby Sparks. I, I definitely like saw this as much much less of a kind of nostalgic feel-good mm-hmm. film, and I was actually kind of – Grossed out and sickened. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Sickened by uh this film. Yeah, like he to me is a is a despicable (laughs) character and um I actually fucking hated the ending, man, because for me, the actions that he takes throughout the course of the film, and the way that he is able to be redeemed at the end and still get the thing that he wants at the end, made me so fucking angry because, yeah. in my opinion, he does not deserve that at all. What that guy did was torture, right? And it's like the actions of a, of a sick, a sick, sick person, and yet he still gets <laughs> to have his cake and eat it too, and get his fucking dream girl. Which I'm like, so- no, 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 fuck you, man. You don't deserve that. <laughs>
1: So, did it act? Was it all his imagine his imagination? Like his family never saw um, Ruby.
0: Well, it's a tough one, right? It kind of oscillates because back and if, forth.
1: Because if his family saw Ruby, then if they were to meet her again, wouldn't they be like, "What the hell, Ruby?" And <laughs> she'd be like, "What?"
0: Yeah, exactly. And especially the brother too, right? Because the brother yeah. was like, "Wait, how how are you here again?" Right after you fucking appeared and then disappeared. Because they all interact with her.
1: Yeah. Cause that's what I was thinking. Like maybe he, they never interacted with her, and that was just all his imagination.
0: I think. I think the interesting thing about this film
2: is that whether she's real is not really the point. But it is this blurring, like like the fact that you question whether she's real, I and mean, you have this blurring line between whether she really is there or it is just just a figment of imagination. I think this is like the the great thing or or the idea about it is that this girl is totally a projection, like the manifestation of your fantasy and you just kind of lost it uh, and and you just question, Oh, is this real the whole time? I think maybe it's intentional.
0: Yeah. And it definitely, it definitely, I don't know. I guess it stays ambiguous, right? For the most part. So you, you as a viewer can do that same projecting that Calvin is as well. Yeah. Shit. I don't know. So to me, one of the stronger claims in the essay is, and uh, I was talking a little bit about this to Oliver before, was that so often the, the essay claims that these films can inform so much of what a modern girl is and they will use these films as kind of, I don't know if you want to call them templates or ways to act. Like they are characters that young girls will model their behavior after. And so this is a, a pretty strong claim. And I actually think that maybe it would not apply that much to Ruby Sparks specifically because they're throughout the entire film, they're specifically making the point that she is not a real girl, right? She, they're instead showing that she is a just a male fantasy. So the claim that this is somehow influencing the way that girls are acting or modeling their behavior after. Yeah, I think it was a, I think it was a pretty big leap. Maybe less of a leap in some of the other films, but in this one, I, I don't agree at all. Do you have a quote for that, Oliver?
1: I think it was something on page 172.
0: Yeah, I have here, um, films are bearers of ideology The way that they construct gender and produce role models will have straight consequences on how young women negotiate their place in society and perform their femininity, directly influencing the ways they dress, speak, behave, and even dye their hair, after all. It is not in vain that polka dot dresses and blue hair became popular at the same time that these films were released. So that's a pretty bold claim um, to start the essay off with.
2: Why do you you think girls won't model themselves after these characters?
0: I think that there are different claims. One is uh, about the films such as Eternal Sunshine or 500 Days of Summer, which I think is very different from how Ruby is portrayed. Because for me, in the film, it's so explicit, both in just the film itself. She is just a creation of this male fantasy, right? That is made clear as day from the very start of the film. So I don't think the young women are going to construct their own identities in terms of... A reflection of a male fantasy and second because the film is constantly beating you over the head with the fact that she is not real the brother is probably encapsulates as the best like this woman who has all of these you know features that you desire they don't exist and I think that that uh, is made quite clear in this film compared to the other ones well this film specifically
2: then, then I would agree
0: because this Ruby
2: character is not kind of created to be like, very extremely likable I think at least to intelligent viewers <laughs> if, you know some just like average minded uh, <laughs> just uh, people who don't care about movies they watch this movie like oh she looks so beautiful she looks so nice I don't want to dress like her because uh, because she's desirable and she's like a, she's uh, sought after and and to be honest some some girls really are like that they, they look at something. It looks nice, and then they imitate it. This is why everything on social media gets viral so easy. This is why girls like compress their voice when they talk because, like, (laughs) you know, uh, some some there are some scientific (laughs) literature actually proven. Oh, this makes them more desirable to men. Men uh, responds uh, differently to these girls, and I think this also ties to the double entanglement problem of post-feminism which is that girls want to be desired and so now that they've got this post feminist freedom they can do what they what they want then they choose to revert back to some sort of like traditional submissive uh, feminine existence basically because those qualities make them more desirable to men
0: yeah just to jump in on the whole double entanglement thing this was interesting to me as well i wasn't sure i fully understood the the concept um i kind of understand it as you know of course traditionally women have wanted to emancipate themselves from things like You know, traditional gender norms or traditional, you know, body politics. And they do that by kind of revolting against these norms. And so that would be the kind of second wave feminism, getting women out of the kitchen, um, you know, not engaging in these kinds of male desire, beauty, upkeep, you know, all of that, uh, you know, not shaving, not trying to make themselves some sort of ideal form of beauty. And so that was the kind of second wave feminist movement. Whereas now, like you said, in the more post feminist, Era, they kind of have the freedom now to return back to those beauty norms, but they're returning back to them not because these norms have been yeah. imposed on them, but it's framed as a kind of uh, free choice, right? Does yeah, this it's makes an sense? illusion. Whereas they are now autonomous beings who are not being imposed. It's not being imposed upon them that they need to knit or hang out in the kitchen or, you know, wear nice dresses or makeup or whatever. Instead, they are choosing to. Um, engage in these behaviors, which means that it's not the behaviors or you know wanting to look pretty in itself that is bad. It's just the fact yeah. that it's being imposed on them. Um, does this make sense? But then it also seems like the double entanglement, it made the point that the returning back is also not good for women because they've somehow internalized these things um, as well. I, I don't know if you have anything to elaborate on that, Gordon. Yeah.
2: Okay, I can just... Basically, what you said so far is totally correct, according to this paper, right? So what, what I do is just to extend what you said. Um, so there's a quote on page 185, and it says, uh, the possession of a sexy feminine body is conflated with women's, uh, women's identity and success in a way that astutely rebrands traditional models of femininity as post-feminist choices. So... This quote just basically says that, well, nowadays, if uh, the post-feminist thinks that they have won equality, right? So, so the war for equality has, has won, and they can basically do anything they want. And because women have uh, this female body that men are kind of just like naturally fascinated with, and um, I think, and also under the influence of neoliberalism, uh, everyone now is an entrepreneur as themselves, right? So they, c- they have to use any tools at their disposal to navigate the social field. And women happen to have their female body as a tool. So if you're an intelligent woman, then why not kind of use this tool to your advantage? So this is the point. And also the way in which they use their body and their sexuality and this is the problematic point for the feminists: is that they they um, go to some sort of like I think I think a more real life example is like the girly girl, you know what I mean? And this is um, uh, uh, kind of uh, epitomized by the manic pixie dream girl, which is this like super cute female character. But in the essay, uh, they also discuss this idea of being cute, right? Uh, what Anna Harant called modern enchantment small things and being cute is not necessarily a nice thing because um they being cute means a certain degree and eroticization of powerlessness like you're like just like cute and small and powerless and you're vulnerable and you need protection and men love this idea of being a protector of something because it makes them feel manly and masculine and empowered right so women kind of um they Maybe consciously or unconsciously, but have this tendency to make themselves uh, seem vulnerable or small, so that men would like them because of this fact. And uh, actually, interesting recent example. So I have I have gone on dates, right? And so when you go go on to a date, uh, when you first meet a girl, of course you want to show your best, like best personality and best virtues to, to the other person. But this girl I met. She told she, she kind of like oh she she's kind of stiff and then she would tell like oh uh, she would show her best qualities and but at the same time she she told me that she's very clumsy and I I, I I was thinking okay how why does like being clumsy at this um kind of considered by her as a sort of like acceptable quality that she would that would escape her filters to communicate to me right mm. and so maybe I I think this has to do with this kind of like cute, or uh, this sort of girly girl trend, or or this phenomenon that is made possible by all these like neoliberalism and post-feminist tendencies. So to go back to earlier, what I said was that maybe the girls would identify with these characters was because we live in such times that there are these conditions, or these things that are happening, to build up these, yeah, as, uh, uh, as conditions, and when girls like feel that because they live in this world influenced by these forces, and then they see these films, which kind of are also shaped by these conditions, and they would take them as role models,
0: right? Um, and so uh, I guess I get what you're saying, and uh, I think Hannah Arendt talks about you know when you refer to something that is cute or um, the cute person, it's always in a kind of patronizing way where you're kind of looking down on them where like you know they can't really you know control their environment but instead like they are something that uh, needs to be protected or lorded over which um, I guess makes sense um,
2: yes oh on this just to interject uh, sorry um, I read Deleuze and he has a really great simple example of saying how when you say a dog like the figure of the dog you said it's, it's cute but at the same time you said uh, you call some people a dog to insult them. Mm. So there is like this really thin line between what is cute and what is really kind of despised or looked down
0: on. You know? Right. <laughs> That's actually interesting and, uh, I don't know, terrifying at the same time. Keep that in your mind anytime someone calls you cute. Because <laughs> you're right. It's a thin veneer of a compliment. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, sorry. Go on. Go but yeah, on. I guess... I guess uh, I'm always thinking about motives, right? And so for me, I see it as a good thing that women, just as men, are able to navigate the kind of neoliberal environment where the individual is its own kind of enterprise that is, you know, serving their own best interests. And so the, the paper seems to be taking a stance that acting in your own self-interest to get what you want by embodying some of these traits is inherently a bad thing right but if the women are engaging in some sort of self-interested behavior that is acting in a cutesy way so that they can get what they want from men isn't that a good thing
1: i think the problem that she was trying or the authors were raising is that they be they become depoliticized right and they no longer challenge that higher patriarchy or hierarchy
0: Mm. and i thought it was interesting too where the essay mentions how the male gaze has instead been turned into a kind of internal gaze of the woman. So they're not like they're they're just like pointing the mirror at their their own selves, um, which might be actually very bad for their own internal psyche. I guess they're also just kind of serving their own self interest to get what they want out of men by engaging in certain behaviors. So they have they're kind of just playing the same game now, right?
2: Hey. Here is a very poetic uh, response to you. Well, uh, there's this film scholar, Mary Ann Dole, who wrote a book uh, about females, female figures in film, and it's called The Desire to Desire. Wow, (laughs) such a poetic title, (laughs) right? But the the basic idea is that um, women in film are objectified, uh, whether it's uh, because of the male gaze or... yeah, Yeah, exactly, just like how... They they have this like exhibitionist presence in the film, and only that. So, in terms of um, linguistics, like the, do you remember the signifier and the signified kind of stuff? Yeah. So they are, they are um, signifiers, but they don't signify anything but their own beauty. So they are always this, just like a surface of a coin, but it does not have any depth. You know. So they are not subjects. They don't desire. They are. Only there to be desired, and um, there is also uh, this example of how women over-identify with film characters. They tend to because, like, um, there's a study about how women frequently uh, ghost, like they will watch the same film over and over, and because just because of their uh, over-identification with certain characters. And there is this um, who's that creepy guy's name who made Midnight in Paris?
1: Uh, Woody Allen. Woody Allen, yes. And there's
2: this Woody Allen film, uh, what, A Flower in Cairo or something like that. And there's this scene where the girl sits in the cinema and it, it is like her fifth time or fourth time seeing this film so many times. And then she, she would cry and uh, seeing this guy comes on and like uh, being very gentlemanly and that kind of stuff. And then there's this scene in the film when the guy literally walks out of the screen takes the girl and leaves the cinema very like, <laughs> dramatically. And so this scene is used as an example by my professor to kind of talk about the problems of females in films is that they they sort of like just become this desired object,
0: but they don't desire anything. Interesting. Um, and I guess that kind of connects to two points in the essay. One we'll talk about later, which is, is I think the whole psychoanalytic part. But just to go to the more early part of the essay on page 170 at the very top. It talks about characters being defined in terms of the superficial personality markers, such as music taste or thrift shop clothing. Um, she is therefore largely defined by secondary status and lack of an inner life. And so I think that it talks so much about the kind of iconography that the female characters are um, identified with. Whereas, which I think is very interesting. The, the amount of props that are Put on to the female characters in these films, like, you know, the crazy hair or the the hipster clothing, the polka dot dress, that in comparison to the representation of the male characters, which, you know, think Calvin, think, uh, Jim Carrey, um, and Tom, they are just like plain dressed, you know, earth tone, boring clothing, right? And so, like, (laughs) exactly, right? And so you look at the ways in which that level of identification with things or items or cultural products is just so much more accentuated with the female characters when compared to the males. Maybe that is also reflected in real life because the females would want to associate with that kind of image, that kind of inflated image more than the male characters, right? Whereas because there's nothing really to signify Jim Carrey and Eternal Sunshine as well as mine, other than he dresses very plainly. Same with same with Tom and same with Calvin, right? They just dress extremely normally. Where, so, that – I mean, maybe, maybe there is a big discrepancy there. But at the same time, I was thinking at, as well, like this is just the way that art is used to define personality in films, right? This is the kind of show-don't-tell principle where you can give a – A great lens into someone's personality by what they're wearing on screen and um, what kind of uh, books they're seen on screen reading or something like that. And so the essay talks about these as superficial personality markers. Whereas I like why what makes them so superficial, right? Like everyone's identity is wrapped up to some degree or another to to icons or personal products or consumer objects or anything like that. I think that this is just one layer of defining a film or a book character's personality. And I don't see it necessarily as so superficial.
2: Mm. Well, I think maybe uh, the, the word superficial is not addressed to the character itself, but more like, okay, yes and no. But yes, in a way that the character does not have its... Like the main problem feminists have with the Dream Dreamer is the secondary status this character serves in film, which means that it has no goal of its own. It's not the main protagonist. It, it is just there to serve just its a purpose. Tool. Of, yeah, just a tool, tool, exactly, for the white, middle-class, mokie, sad, <laughs> effeminate man to learn a life lesson and to be a man. And, and so like this lack of maybe a, like a goal or a personality, maybe this is what constitutes the superficiality. Mm.
0: So maybe instead, yeah, like the problem might be not the fact that they are, you know, dressed up in these, you know, icons or products. It's the fact that that is being substituted for an actual internal personality in a primary role in the film, right? It's not necessarily that they're wearing these things. It's that that is all that is given to us in terms of the development of their personality, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, which is interesting yeah, because the it, roles are flipped. Sorry to interrupt, but the none. the man is actually the complete inverse of that. They are the ones with the yeah. internal personality. They are the ones, the drivers of the plot. They are the ones with desires and goals, but they have no real external markers of personality, like significant clothing or crazy hair or something like that.
2: Yeah. Valid observation. That's true. And, but, but, Oh, interestingly, this also runs with the kind of age old, stereotype or uh, however you call it, is this dichotomy between men and women. And the, and the female is always with the body, right? And the man is always associated with the mind. And um, beca- because this whole Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope, there is an element of mysticism that surrounds it. The, uh, for example, there's the idea that the, the female is, is the muse. You plays the character of the muse that sort of enlightens the male character. But also, we can see it another way through the uh, perspective of madness, and, uh, you know, um, which is also, uh, there's this point raised by the same uh, Mary Ann Dole, who said that um, she wrote a really nice essay on um, female madness in Hollywood cinema. Because in classic Hollywood cinema in the 40s, you get all uh, these bunch of so-called women's films And they have uh, they the plots are all surrounded on women, but they have some sort of like mental illness, like um, anxiety or like schizophrenia or like just any kind of mental illness or hysteria. And then you always have this male character who, of course, is the main guy, and he serves as like um, like he enters into like a couple relationship with this female character, and the author uh, tells calls this the medical gaze, which is like um, the women. Um, all right, damn, sorry, I, I've taken this too far. But the point I want to raise is that females are always associated with um, mental illness. And even the idea of mental illness starts from hysteria, right? Mm-hmm. And hysteria, if you know a bit about Freud, uh, there is the idea of the wandering womb. Because it always has to do with the mysterious female body, which is uh, kind of a, a mystery, a puzzle to men. So maybe this uh, corresponds to what you said about it is the man who has all the internal mental struggle in the mind and the female who has all the flashy, spectacular,
0: outer life. Right. Well, there you go. Huh. I'm trying to think of a connection here because he does mention the, the history of hysteria as well in the, in the paper, right? Um I think that uh, so often when you see an, an uptick or an increase in female autonomy, um, there's there, it's so much backlash. And it's uh, one of the easiest ways to to you know put backlash on it is to label it as something as uh, hysteria, right?
2: Because the Madness Study is actually uh, one of the pioneers is Foucault. If you know Foucault, he's all about the history of society, right? And so from Foucault, we learned that madness is also not only biologically, but also social, socially defined. So, like what you said. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a great example of it, right? Hmm. All right, Oliver, you're you're up next. Do you have like a point that you would want to raise?
1: Um, the authors they insinuated that this trope is kind of dying out, though the manic pixie dream girl.
0: Yeah, it has died out. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So has it died out because it's no longer as much of a male fantasy as it was before? Or is this because there's now uh, better representation, there's more women writing films? What, what do you think the cause of that is? Because I think that uh, the paper makes it so clear that the reason it's so prevalent in the first place is because it's just the abundance of lonely male writers projecting their fantasies onto <laughs> the Hollywood screen, which I think is totally valid, right? But are we moving away from that? Is this is progress?
2: I think it is valid and invalid at the same time I, i'm actually more against it okay but so yeah
1: the reason why the authors the reason why the authors are saying that the trope may be dying out is because they say something like maybe the post-feminist discourses are coming to an end
0: i guess it does talk about well the m manic pixie dream girl offers a role model sadly grounded on traditional femininity um, it is also true that nowadays less female protagonists conform to the stereotype which I interpret as a symptom that the era of post-feminist discourses may be coming to its end. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I guess – I don't think the trope needs to die. I think that the females who embody this trope just need to be more fully formed characters who have their own internal life and subjectivity and you know goals and such like that. I don't think that there's anything wrong with the personality type. I just think that the representation of it could be improved. So I don't see the – Removal of the genre as a whole is necessarily a good thing. Like, why can't we just continue to iterate on it and continue the improving representation of female in films?
2: Interesting example is: um, Do you know? Do you know about John Green's Paper Towns? Uh, oh yeah. You know, either the book or the movie. Uh, so Oliver knows about this. So um, John Green wrote this book with the intention to kill off the manic pixie dream girl. So. So there is. Uh, that's why in the end of the story, you have this big reveal that it is all in a guy's head. And the girl has her own ambitions, and which totally deviates from what the guy's uh, thought it, it was. And so, of course, he, he claims that in this way, he killed the manic pixie dream girl. But actually, personally, I don't think he killed the, uh, the stereotype. But instead, he evolved that stereotype. Because I think what... These manic pixie dream girl films are really essentially about. It's about. It is a rite of passage for young boys, and it is about masculinity. <laughs> well, uh, because if you look really, really closely in Ruby Sparks, right, the first most uh, the first scene when when uh, Kelvin appears is he's like in the gym with his brother, right, and then is this, like this man to man talk. They're like working out, super masculine talking about his own insecurities and talking about women and all that stuff. Uh, um, And and just like this sets up the tone of the film. This is a film about masculinity and about this guy's uh, own dealing with his uh, dealing with his own narcissism. Right. So um, Mm -hmm. the reason why he evolved that this this dysfunction in the man, pixie dream girl is that, okay, so whether the girl has a goal or not doesn't really matter. What really matters is the guy. He learns the lesson in the end, right? So this girl, whether he he is now like elevated, he become better than a secondary character, but it is still a manic pixie dream girl, and and the guy still got something out of it,
0: mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, interesting. You bring up um, two things. The, one is like that these are stories about um, male transformation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Exactly. And the start of the film with them being at the gym and his brother trying to help him out uh, of the slump that he's in, it's interesting that it goes to show that masculine means, that is like going to the gym and you know making yourself more of a man, doesn't work for him, right? It is only through his journey through a vessel of femininity instead that he's able to achieve this kind of uh, transformation. Although I say that and also I would also say though, at the end, I don't think that there's any transformation that went on at all. Uh, I don't think that Calvin has improved as a character at all. I still see him as shitty and he's still going to go back to the same girl that he initially constructed. You can tell from that scene, that's, it mirrors the first meeting that they have with the dog, right? This new fully formed, quote unquote, version of Ruby is not a fully formed human being. She is just... Still the creation of Calvin before he started to make revisions and edits, which does not make her any more of a autonomous being. So I don't know. That, uh, there's like three different things. All in one right. Point, but.
2: Oliver, do you do you share the same thought? Do you um, think this guy deserves it? Deserves this happy ending?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I think the ending was kind of... Um, what exactly happens in the ending again? He So he comes across her in the park. She's reading his book.
0: Yeah. So like, I don't know how much time passes, but... Like, you know, he tortures the girl in his room and, like, basically acts like a, you know, just a psychopath. And then he writes her out of the story and is like, okay, now Ruby is going to be free. And then she disappears from his life. And then he writes his book. And then he meets her again in the park with his dog. And she is reading the book. And the interaction between the two of them, you get the sense that her personality is no different from their first meeting with the dog where she wants to paint him right and so she hasn't evolved as a character at all in my opinion she is just the first draft of calvin's iteration like of calvin's writing right and so she has not become someone with her own you know desires and goals she's just still that first draft of calvin's imagination and i don't think that he should get her <laughs> At all. And you know what? <laughs> if he is involved, then of course he would want to move past the kind of women that exist in his mind, the kind of idealized version. Where is the development there? Where is the transformation? Where is your desire for some sort of autonomous female instead, right?
1: Oh, yeah. But he did have uh, an autonomous female, his ex-girlfriend. And this kind of ties back to the whole um, Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Remember that scene at the party when he meets his uh, ex-girlfriend and she's like, you're threatened by me. And but whereas with Ruby's, she's unthreatening and she doesn't even have um, her own job or anything like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they were both writers, right? Which I thought was interesting. When Oliver brings up the word threat,
2: here's the interesting thing about the male gaze, right? So, oh, oh have we actually read uh, Laura Mulvey's article in in, uh, in MIT? I think we did. Visual pleasures.
1: Or we did in film class.
2: Yeah, yeah, narrative pleasures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. visual pleasure narrative cinema. Yes. So, in that that article, she's talking about how uh, Laura Mulvey is talking about how women are just like this objectified uh, spectacle for men, right? And the reason, the psychoanalytic reason behind this was because female, was just the simple fact that females do not uh, possess a penis. And this... Acts as a threat of castration to men, because men realize that oh damn this this woman uh, uh, sort of like reminds me of the fact that I can lose my penis or lose my potency or my masculinity. So the presence of female on the screen or just like in general maybe according to the theory is just like a, a huge threat. So okay, how do I psychologically deal with this fact? There are two avenues in relation to the male gaze. And it is, and the two ways are actually, uh, uh, exhibited in Hitchcock's Vertigo. The first way is to investigate and demystify, and demystify the female, right? Uh, in, in the Vertigo, uh, Scotty, he was, was it Scotty? I think it was Scotty. He was like a, a detective. Yeah, Scotty. Yeah, and then he, he like tails this woman and do all this kind of like voyeuristic stuff, being a peeping Tom and creepy and shit. And the second way, Is to fetishize the female, makes it like this, like really pleasurable object, so that to reduce her threat to your own masculinity or manhood, right? So that um, Calvin's uh, interaction with his ex girlfriend is actually kind of like, like talk about this theme in general, like um, she threatens his manhood or his masculinity or his any sort of conception of himself, this fantasy conception of himself. But Ruby would never do that because she is a product of his own imagination which will always protect his ego and his existence, right? So this also is another proof of why this is a guilty pleasure, the Manifixie Dream Girl, and how this is all about the male fantasy and just to protect his vulnerable
0: spirit huh yeah and I, uh, I guess throughout the whole film y- you talk so much about about transformation yeah and his ex his ex-girlfriend confronts him with the fact that he uh, has not transformed at all. Clearly he hasn't because he still just goes into blaming her for everything and they have this huge blow up fight Also every time that Ruby doesn't you know, succumb to his, to what he wants or is not acting in a certain way. Instead of changing himself and the way that he is as a boyfriend or the way that he is as a man and, you know, actually confronting his own masculinity, he instead resorts to the typewriter to change the other person <laughs> as if they're a uh, mere object, right? And so at no point does he actually look inside of himself for that sense of transformation at all because he can just resort to this, to this typewriter, right? <laughs> um don't make me bring up the type right <laughs> which is why yeah exactly exactly like and i don't know why he deserves to be rewarded at the end of this film i to me he he has done he has made no strides he's made no gains uh whatsoever um
1: the film kind of reminded me of ex machina
0: yeah well i mean at least at least that woman got to fuck over the the weird guy though like. <laughs> right <laughs> yeah interesting um because th- both of those women are products of male creation, creation. Right? That's true. What did you guys think about this whole concept of like projecting the ideal onto the the woman? An interesting
2: point actually raised
0: by Jordan Peterson. I saw it in one of his
2: YouTube lectures. He talked about you know, of course he. This is what he's controversial for, right? Uh, which is heterosexual uh, male and female relations. But uh, he 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 raised a point that he also studies like ancient literature and the Bible and all these like um, historical books and then he showed pictures of like since like the Renaissance time or even like paintings before that there are images of like knights kneeling before Venus and and it is like it comes from out of an artwork called um, the Victory of Venus or something like that and he uses this as an example to illustrate his point that. Uh, Throughout history, men has always used um, women as a sort of like feminine ideal to propel themselves. So women serves as this sort of like agent of shame. So like men would know that they're not good enough. So they would shame themselves like through this agent of shame to kind of propel themselves upward to become better. So when once you have like more resources, then you can like in a very calculative, almost like neoliberal way, you can so you can, you can purchase this other person, right? Because now now you have like at least like equal standings. So you know um, no, so 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 it just like ties back to the the theme about how women are the muse because they inspire the men to become greater.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there's the perfect example in this film, right? The the way that Calvin uses his creation of Ruby as a vehicle. For him to overcome his writer's block and to create that next, to go from just kind of a depressed human being to another, uh, to writing another great yeah. novel, right? Um, he has used the the female there that, uh, of course, is a much better person and um, is literally much like just a much better uh, human being than than he is. But he still uses her as a vehicle to propel himself upward to to get what what he wants in the end, right? Okay, that is to write and, another novel, and here is a question to you boys
2: isn't that what we do in everyday life though like aren't we using other pe- using people as things to move ourselves forward although you don't see it that way but you know maybe this is how the natural this is how human nature works
0: yeah and that's why i brought up yeah. the point about like, is there really anything wrong with the females using their body as a means to get what they want and doing their own sort of propelling forward in society, right? Because this is not just a dynamic that exists between a man using a female, but instead it is one that uh, you know females use over other females, men use over other men, women use over men. Like, this is a more fundamental thing than the mere dynamic between uh, uh, the kind of depressed man and the manic pixie dream girl. This is something that extends beyond... Uh, this specific trope what do you think Oliver?
1: That? yeah that's something i was uh thinking about too like maybe it's just our uh natural inclinations to uh resort to these things in order to attract the opposite sex or
2: yeah because because you you, you would think that no one would like a loser unless they they have a preference for weaker partners right so maybe new liberalism which claims to unveil the human nature and goes uh, and, and develops according to this course is right because humans are maybe they live in this inherently competitive environment, each trying to like best each other or even like only themselves. So, like, um, female using their body, male using whatever, just like everybody using whatever is at their disposal. I'm all I, I for that. I think that's perfect. That perfectly makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there another way um, and how much of this behavior that we engage in, this kind of self-interested behavior is informed by the economic neoliberal environment and how much of that economic uh, neoliberal environment is a mere reflection of our human nature? Right? Like, um, Do we have other modes of being that we can engage in that's more altruistic and more teamwork oriented and not being so self-interested and um, engaging in one-upsmanship with each other all the time? Or is this so baked into us? Can we not escape? (laughs) It's so dark. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I certainly like to think that we can escape it, right? But I know there's a lot of biology and a lot of evolution that says otherwise, I guess. But hmm. I don't know. I don't know, guys. (laughs) Big question. (laughs) Let's keep acting self-interested for now. Yeah. um, Well... Uh, The topic of the dumbbells
2: of kind of segues into what the essay mentioned about hipsterism.
0: All right, perfect.
2: What do you boys have to say about that?
0: Oliver, you want to start?
1: Well, first, I just thought it was hilarious how the authors use Urban Dictionary (laughs) to go on this, like, (laughs) (laughs) two-paragraph definition of hipsterism.
2: (laughs)
0: Is it justified, Uh, though? Is it justified? I just kind of like, Seriously? Seriously? Yeah, I don't know what better way to tap into the on-the-ground reality, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what did you guys think of when the author was talking about how um, these IndieWood films are... Their um, ideologies are a little bit more hidden and illusory. Ah. Um,
0: yeah, do you have to uh,
1: it's, uh, it's at the beginning of the...
0: Because I thought the, like, the indie wood stuff for me was very interesting too. And I guess I kind of saw the... I don't know if it would, if you could call it a transition, but it's a parallel between independent avant-garde films that actually stand in opposition to Hollywood norms and story, storytelling tropes and everything like that. Whereas you have the indie wood, which actually exists in that kind of middle boundary, that actually is not looking for radical departures from the Hollywood norm, but instead slight tweaks – to still distinguish it as a kind of niche market that, you know, people would you know be drawn to, but it is not very far away from the norm of Hollywood film. And so I saw this paralleled to uh, how the author describes the hipsters back in the 1960s, which was uh, had a direct at its core, a very oppositional political, radical movement to it. Um, that was instead, Uh, consumed or swallowed up by or repurposed by the kind of overarching society to turn the hipster culture into one that is much more in line with the norms of consumer culture and conformity. And so just as the independent film has been somewhat consumed into the indie wood, becoming much more in line with the norm, same has happened with the alternative hipsters versus the kind of modern day hipsters, right?
2: That's true.
0: Because it talks about the hipsters used to be like 1960s, um, I believe it was 60s, like kind of radical people, and now they're instead um, they are just hipsters now are just kind of consumers, basically that buy niche just products for the sake of identity. Yeah, exactly, and they're and the most key and fundamental part of their mm-hmm. identity is the cultural commodities that they consume, right? So what they were initially opposing has now become the very core of their existence and identity, right?
1: I was actually thinking about this before we started. Um, but have you guys, you've got, you guys yeah. have heard of like minimalism, right? It's almost like a different kind of hipsterism where it's like refusal to buy anything.
0: Well, yes, no, it's
1: built upon refusal to buy anything.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I would actually I see it in a slightly different way. I would push back against this if you're wrong. If you think I'm wrong, but I see minimalism as a very fucking expensive way of living. Actually, where instead of owning many um, small pieces of junk in your house, you instead live a way of life which consists of owning the very best, most expensive, singular cultural product. Um, so you were still just as much of a consumer, but instead of buying many small things, you were just buying the most fucking expensive individual items. Like you're going to have the nicest <laughs> fucking laptop and you're going to have the nicest phone, but those are the only two electronics you're going to have, right? You're going to have a Kindle versus a, used, uh, a whole shelf of used books. Um you're gonna have a sweet ass, like pristine marble countertop uh, studio apartment, as opposed to a larger, messy house, right? But you're still just as much of a consumer as you were before. There's no escape. Yeah, here. it's just
1: it's just a it's just a slow dime as opposed to the fast nickel.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, uh, the what uh, you know, the minimalists are trying to position themselves as against some sort of consumer culture, whereas instead. It is the fact that they are buying the most luxury and high-end consumer goods that is the most core part of their minimalist identity. Okay, so it's just a huge contradiction there as well. All right. So, okay, what I know about minimalism is that the rise
2: of this art movement or aesthetic, right, is um, it it came out of uh, in opposition to abstract expressionism, like which is like those paintings you see and then just the artist like, writing uh p- painting in whatever abstracts shapes and colors he wants and this is like this um, ultimate expression of personality right but minimalism rose against that it thinks that um it, it wants a sense of simplicity harmony and order and so this has uh come, kind of informed those like white Canvas painting with a red dot in the middle in those like modern art museums you see, and was like these paintings like mm-hmm. people never get right. So these paintings are come out of that idea, and I'm not sure whether saving money or actually living on less things are part of the narrative. But I, I guess it is like you know uh, put in afterwards, or maybe it, it is really you know, associated
0: with these ideas mm. naturally. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I guess uh, minimalism as an art movement is much different from the kind of minimalism documentary as on, a lifestyle. Yeah, as a lifestyle, right? The documentary on Netflix or like the YouTube people who live this like chic as fuck minimalist lifestyle, right? Yeah, it's like
1: it's like quasi religious.
0: Yeah, and there you go, right? The initial opposition movement to the norm that is the uh, uh, that you're talking about in the art movement, Gordon, just gets subsumed. Um, by the dominant culture of consumerism, anyways, so it's no longer an oppositional movement at all. I, interesting. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I guess I'm thinking about minimalism in a different yo, way. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but when you just talk anyways. about and um, okay, you
2: guys know about the society of the spectacle, right? By uh, Guy Debord. I
0: think we mentioned it. in lecture, Yeah. Okay. okay it, so but, basically,
2: Guy Debord, this French his thesis was that was that um, like in the late '60s, he wrote the book, and he says that our society have become a society of spectacle which is and uh, which is the next level of this marxist critique of a materialistic society which means like everybody's social relations are defined by the things they own and so uh, uh, now it has become like things people appear and or look like so this is the spectacle which defines people's social status right and there's this really neat quote that that kind of encapsulate what you said. You said like, people went from being to having and to appearing. So, <laughs> it's like people from being like hipsters with that um, kind of like counterculture ideology, radical political statement, into like having hipster stuff, you know, vinyl records or you know clothes or that that that, that lifestyle, whatever. <laughs> And now into the next level, appearing to look like hipsters, uh, mostly with fashion or just like Instagram photos of places you've been, but you don't actually own them.
0: <laughs> so we have come this natural progression. Yeah, man, that's fucking... Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's sad to hear. <laughs> but a great point and a nice way to put it as well. But, huh. Wow. Wow. Um, I have nothing to add to that <laughs> that was just such a nice bow on top and it makes me just depressed and sad <laughs> oh That's man great. Um, Oliver final thoughts
1: well um it's gonna be hard to enjoy these yeah. films moving forward <laughs> <laughs> definitely won't be putting those on my letterbox <laughs> I
0: don't know i don't I don't find myself. Less attracted to the real life versions of these types of females, right? I still love, you know, very fun, spontaneous girls who have, you know, a wide array of interests, right? But of course, the representation can get better. I don't think we need to throw this trope out the window entirely. I just think that we need to improve upon it and um, maybe getting some new takes on it. Some, uh, like the essay says, how male focused these. These films are. And so maybe the concept of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl can be stripped of its dependence on the depressing male character and can instead be um, about just a fully functioning, autonomous, uh, eccentric, spontaneous female who is on her own path and... Um, you know, has her own goals and maybe she can use a man instead as a vessel for her <laughs> own personal development. Um, yeah, you know, you got to throw us under the bus. manic once in a while. dream boy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, queen. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>